Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders to start this one off, talk a little bit about last week's podcast. First off, I want to thank everybody that posted up just some absolutely gorgeous photos of Salmopius or Salmopius. Somebody said there's another way to pronounce it. I've always said Salmopius. I never know if I'm right with these things, so feel free to chime in on that one. But I went over to Facebook and was looking at just all the gorgeous pictures. And I think that's really powerful for a couple of reasons. A, with this format, obviously you just hear my voice. You don't get to see the spiders. So anybody that's, you know, be bopping over to Facebook after listening to the podcast or finding the podcast from Facebook, get to see pictures and photos of some of the ones that I was talking about, and quite frankly, much better photos than I ever take. They were just stunning. Uh, the other thing is, a lot of people chimed in with the some notes about the behaviors they see in theirs, which is what I was really looking forward to, because again, I know that although I can sit there and go on and on about how mine are very laid back, or one of them's very shy, or one of them's a little uppity, I know it Particularly with the genus Salmopius, there seems the, the temperaments vary wildly from specimen to specimen. So it's like for every one person that said they had a Cambridge eye that was really laid back and just hung out, somebody else would come on and say theirs was nuts. The same thing with the pulchra. Some people had Armenias that were crazy. Some people had Armenias that were ones that hung out in the open and were very laid back. It was really kind of neat to see. So it's awesome. I love looking at the different temperaments because, again, I think we get caught up sometimes in the fact when we talk about tarantula temperament, we it's very easy to just group a spider into one end of the spectrum behaviorally or the other. So we just say this one's very uh, a very bold, very defensive tarantula. And then on the other end, we have the, these guys are very laid back and almost tractable. And it's always somewhere in between and it can differ from molt to molt. And I always think that's a point that's important to stress. Again, we can, we can generalize because I think there's enough information. We've kept some of these species long enough to know that there are some commonalities between different specimens that, you know, enough people have said for example, that T. albopelosis is laid back, that theirs are very laid back. So we start to develop that general, all right, this is a more tractable, more laid back, more beginner-friendly spider. And then I'm sure if we took a tally of all the people that owned Salmopius, we'd get them falling more on the a little more defensive side of things. But there's always going to be those outliers, and that's always important to consider from both ends. So thanks so much. I really, I, I we'll be doing more of these in the future where I ask people to chime in because I think that's more important than just me talking. It's, it shouldn't be just one person. And I think that anybody that was potentially interested in getting a species from the genus Salmopius, or maybe they just saw the pod or heard the podcast and went, hmm, these are kind of interesting. When they go over to Facebook, they're confronted with some beautiful images and some, you know, keeper feedback is what they see as far as behavior. So, you know, they may have heard me go, hey, my camera guy really laid back, just hangs out there, you know, awesome spider. And they go back and read somebody else's is a little more high strung that they need to be aware of that. So that's great. And thank you so much. I truly appreciate everybody that chimed in with their photos and their comments and their time. That means a lot. And again, I know I'm not on Facebook as much as I probably should be. It's just there's only so many hours in the day. I do always go over and read the comments and try to hard them or say something. But um, when everybody comes over and does it, I just think it makes it a more interactive experience for everybody of the podcast and makes it more, I don't know, as a teaching tool, I think it makes it more powerful because, again, it's not just one person's opinion. You get to hear everybody's side of it. So this one today is going to be kind of a hodgepodge of different things. First off, one of the things I wanted to talk about was DKS only because I have, I posted a video back in, I think it was like May or March of 2014. And it was my Acanthoscuria in subtilis that it was the first spider I ever had that showed signs of 
DKS or dyskinetic syndrome. And I don't know what happened lately or how this happened, but it's been getting like a lot of my comments have been on that video. For some reason, I don't look at traffic per se for traffic, but when I look at comments, you can usually, what happens is I'll post a video and obviously the majority of comments I get for the next couple weeks on YouTube will be on that video. And then it'll be all the other comments, like the little miscellaneous ones on different older videos or whatever. Well, for some reason, this one picked up again because all of a sudden it's just a lot of rapid fire comments on it. So I don't know if somebody had a case out there of it and it, they brought up the video and thank you if anybody shared the link, whatever it was. But anyway, I also have been getting emails about it lately. A lot of people wanting to show me videos of their spiders thinking that they have DKS. And I think it's something that people hear about. It scares the heck out of them because it's a terrible way for a spider to go. Having seen it with my Acanthoscuria and Subtilis, it, it was a horrible thing to watch. It didn't last very long. She died within about four days of exhibiting signs of it. But And shooting the video was particularly difficult because it was just the, the tarantula obviously was not in a good spot. But I thought it could be a good learning tool for people who are looking, at, looking to see if their spider is exhibiting these signs. So anyway, I've been getting emails about it, comments about it. It's, it's coming up, and in, in many cases, I found that the things people are showing me, in my very unprofessional opinion, it, it's not an example of DKS. I think there are other things that can be mistaken for it. I've seen people, Some one guy sent me a video, it looked like the spider was basically trying to shake something off its foot, and it was only one foot going, and it did look like, first reaction, like, uh-oh, this isn't looking good, but the rest of it, it moved fine, and if you look closely, it had some webbing and some debris stuck to the bottom of its foot, so that wasn't the case. And then there's another thing that I'll bring up here in a moment, and I actually mentioned with my P. Uh, boracola, where it resembles DKS, and there are some similarities, but it having looked, having seen this, and having seen what my insubtilis look like, it looks like two totally different things. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But anyway, long story short, my Acanthoscuria insubtilis back in 2004 got DKS, and we have talked about this before in a topic, but there's some things I want to kind of throw in there that have come to light since then. And at that time, I was frantically trying to figure out what could have caused this because nobody else exhibited. The other thing is you worry about is there have been cases where people's tarantulas have shown signs of DKS or one has shown signs and all of a sudden another one's shown signs. And then you got to start thinking, is it the substrate? Is there something environmental? Is there something in the house? I know one instance, somebody had sprayed, they were in an apartment and somebody in the apartment next door had sprayed something. I believe it was pesticide. I could be wrong. And they figured out that that person had sprayed, and within two days, the majority of their tarantulas that were near that adjoining wall or something were showing signs of DKS. So in my instance, in my case, back in that time period, we were using the frontline flea and tick stuff for the dogs, and this was the old stuff that you'd... It was like this nasty, you rub it down the spine of the dogs. Hopefully some people know what I'm talking about here. You'd pop it open. It was like this ointment and you'd run it right down their spine and lay it on their spine. It would sink into their skin. Probably not the healthiest thing. I'm glad we use something different now. But anyway, we used that and we used to have to put it on all the dogs and we always wore rubber gloves when we did it. But then we'd pet our dogs and we'd play with the dogs. And obviously this stuff was probably getting into our skin, getting into our system, probably on my skin. And I was always very cognizant of this when I was working with spiders. And usually what would happen is within the month when when we treated the dogs, I would always wear gloves when I went to the spider room. But I, this day, I, you know, I'd done some feedings. I, we've had crickets get out and they hit, we have new, a new rule in the house. Now if the crickets get out and hit the ground. We don't use 
them because God only knows what they've been exposed to with people walking in and out of here. It's just kind of a, I don't take the chance. I kind of throw them into the basement for the basement spiders and they get to have a nice big feast. But we don't use anything that hits the ground because of this. I started thinking, well, what if this stuff is, uh, you know, is around the house? What if it's on the floor? What if, you know, I'm touching it with my hands and now it's on the on the table or it's on the chair? It's I didn't know where this stuff could go. So when the after giving it a lot of thought, trying to figure out it wasn't the substrate, it had the same substrate as everything around it. Nobody had sprayed anything. I couldn't figure out anything that could have happened, with the exception of the fact that this particular specimen had just molted. Now it looked like it had a good molt. I will say there was a little skin stuck on the abdomen that I just used a little paintbrush and brushed off and it came off fine, but it was very it wasn't a big deal. It didn't look like it had a bad molt by any stretch of the imagination. And so it came down to, in my mind, the most likely cause of this is somehow that spider was it became contaminated or something, maybe a prey item. I remember, the one thing I do remember is I had a cricket bounce out of the in the cricket cage and I picked it back up and I fed it out that could have hit the ground where some of that stuff I don't know and there's and unfortunately there's no way I'd ever know but it seemed to me to be the most likely way that it got it other ways that people have talked about chemical exposure there was somebody that they painted a room and the latex fumes apparently it was a hot day and it kind of built up in the room and they were having problems with their spiders they thought that could have caused it uh, chemicals, you know, mixing cleaning agents, using bleach. There's a lot of different things. Extreme temperatures are thought to be a possibility. There was an instance where somebody received a spider, the heat pack cut out. The spider was in very cold weather before they were able to get it, and it seemed fine for a little bit, and then next thing you know, it was showing signs of DKS, so that could have been at extreme temperatures. I've also heard of an instance where it was exposed to extremely high temperatures, where it hit the 90s, the box basically baked, and the spider seemed fine at first, and then they got some DKS-type symptoms. So those are the things. Uh, mold was the other one, but although I haven't seen, I think our fear of mold early on the hobby is has been proven to be like unwarranted in many cases because a lot of the stuff that we freak out about it does usually mold points to a situation where it might not be the mold that's going to cause the spider harm but it means that if the mold is able to grow the conditions inside that enclosure are probably good for other things to grow like harmful bacteria i think that's it's kind of an indicator it's like the canary that you know oh i got mold things got to change in here and i think that's more the issue with mold but that was something that was brought up that it could possibly be a, a type of mold that is hazardous to the spider so those are some of the things people think cause it now as far as treatments are concerned i will tell you with the the one spider i had that i was sure was showing signs of dks and that was the a in subtilis it didn't seem like there was anything i could do it couldn't eat it could barely move you can find the video on youtube it's it's horrible to watch there was some stone sour playing in the background which i didn't realize it was the old days where it's just there was no tom's big spiders there was or tom's big spiders youtube channel if I took a video, it was just I'd whip out the camera, tape whatever was there. I wouldn't talk or anything. And I would throw it on YouTube just to illustrate a point. But it, it, but basically all I was able to do for it is I relocated it into another enclosure with moist substrate. I was hoping maybe a little extra. And again, we, we used to train martial arts and there was a, a, a sensei down there that the running joke was if you ever got hurt, he'd just say, put some water on it. And it was like no matter what your injury was, you know, you broke an ankle, go up to the bathroom, put some water on it. And we kind of joked that, uh, like, my it reminds me of the tarantula hobby where 
we don't know what the heck to do with the tarantula. It's sick, so we don't put some water on it. We put it in water. It's like get get some moist substrate. Get it in something with a bunch of wet paper towels. That's going to magically fix it. So, I, again, we we're woefully behind on tarantula medicine. But that's what I did. I put it in an enclosure. It wasn't a stuffy enclosure. I did not restrict ventilation. It was, I believe, a critter keeper. And but put some moist substrate in a water dish. It didn't matter. It was dead within a couple days. I did was doing a lot of research when this happened to try to find out what other people had seen. And the majority of the cases, the tarantula did not make it. I believe there was I think I found one where it supposedly pulled out but there was no video of it because I do think there are two different things going on and this is just my opinion after seeing some things in my own collection that I immediately thought were DKS and then later on thinking more along the lines of it was something different but for example I had mentioned my P arboricola it had gone through the horrible stretch where I found her just almost dead and unresponsive she had moisture she had water in her enclosure but I did put her in the old tarantula ICU just in case and I did mention in that she was making kind of spastic movements, but they didn't look like the DKS that I had seen earlier. The DKS, when I had seen it, it was very spasmodic, fast, uncoordinated, jittery movements. Almost like if you took like a video of a spider moving around awkwardly, but then sped it up. It, it reminded me of the old horror movies where they used to cut frames out of videos to make them look movie. They'd move herky-jerky so you'd have a ghost coming toward you and they'd take frames out so the ghost would kind of skip frames and move closer. It was almost like that sped up. It, it's hard to explain, but if you've seen it, it, it's very recognizable in my opinion. And it just seems like a total utter lack of coordination. They're not able to go in one direction. Like this one, if it got startled, the legs would just like flap all around and it wasn't able to go in one direction. So for example, it, if it was trying to get away from you, it might go to one side, it might go to the other side. I've had it actually come toward me before it went backwards. It wasn't able to control the direction it was going. So those legs kind of skittering around almost the knees, sometimes almost pulling up over the carapace when it did it, it was very awkward, very fast, very spasmodic, something, you know, you don't ever want to see and it does not look right. Now with the P. aboricola, there were some similarities. It did look like it was having a difficult time controlling its limbs but it wasn't as quick it wasn't as uncontrolled it was able to move in one direction when it would reach out his leg I think I described it. I tried to mimic it with my fingers in the video it was terrible but it would reach out and it was like almost like when you see somebody doing it in impersonation of an exaggerated impersonation of a very elderly person who's having a hard time you know in the movies or the cartoons where they're almost shaking because they're trying to move because they're so weak it was like that but it could it was one of those deals when I first looked at it, I'm like oh no it's DKS and I watch it a little more I'm like no wait a minute this is slightly different this looks like there's a slightly different cause to it there's a slightly different physiological thing going on here so I wonder in some instances if these aren't like I, I think in some instances we th see things that we think are DKS and are not again with the PR Boricola I'm thoroughly convinced no proof of this my opinion but I think it was some type of bacterial infection she was definitely ill she definitely went through a bad patch she was weak she was getting uh, smaller wasting away and then I think being in that new environment that cleaner environment water available she seemed to perk up so that would be the difference DKS it seems like it's fatal it, it, they don't seem to come out of it but I get uh, I've received several videos over the years of people that are showing me spiders that they think might be DKS and sometimes it's just a spider that sometimes they're weird spiders can be weird and they do weird things and they move weirdly so one of them the spider was cleaning itself one of them they startled it and I it just looked like a startled spider and again I'm not poking fun it's just, I get it because I every time after this happened with my A in subtilis every time I caught one of my spiders moving weird I freaked out and thought I had DKS so I totally get it 
But there's been other situations where people have posted stuff up called a DKS, and I don't necessarily believe it's the same thing. And, and this is the sad part about the hobby, and we've expressed this quite a few times in the podcast, is the fact that we know so little about them from a veterinary medicine point of view that we just guess. We just guess, and we, we one thing may look very similar to the other. I mean, if you even think of symptoms that humans can get for different ailments, a lot of them are similar across the board. Like, think, take a headache. It's like... It could be a bad headache. It could be light sensitivity. It could be, you know, on the bad end, a tumor. There are many things that have overlapping symptoms. And I think that's the problem with tarantulas is that we don't recognize what which symptom is which. Now, one of the things that came out since this was, I believe it was Tarantula Guy, the YouTuber, Tarantula Guy 1979, I think, um, had a situation where I want to say, I tried to find the video beforehand and, and I didn't find it. I want to say it was an HMAC and there was no video of it, but apparently one of his HMACs was exhibiting spastic movement signs of DKS and they basically treated, he treated it by adding CBD oil to water and giving it CBD oil through water and the spider turned around and the health seemed to improve and it was fine. Uh, I believe there was a rehouse involved, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And I read, I, I heard this, and I watched it, I was watching with interest, and then I had a lot of people asking me about it. And unfortunately, again, I think there's, I have a lot of people that I know that take CBD oil and swear by it, and it's got some great medicinal properties, apparently. And I've had people, you know, tell me that you take it for your anxiety, for, you know, my bad back, all this stuff it works with. So I know there's, it, it's highly regarded by many people as being kind of, a, a, a great remedy for a great many things. We'll put it that way. And again, I'm not saying I don't, I disbelieve or don't, I, I don't have the experience to tell you one way or another. However, when you start talking about treating a spider with it, then it starts getting you thinking like, all right, what is going on here? Now, full disclosure and something that I, I'm aware of is that I believe he and his wife or his wife, their businesses, they sell CBD oil. So again, I'm not saying this is the case, but I am, I am a bit of a skeptic and it's one of those deals. It's like, all right, well, it would really benefit the business if people started buying this and giving it to their spiders. I don't think that was what was the motivation behind it. I think he was really worried about the spider and said, hey, it works for me. Let me try it with the spider. But I do want to throw that in there just so people don't think I'm buying this hook, line, and sinker. I'm I'm skeptical of it. But I apparently he was giving it the oil in the water for a little while. It perked up. So his thought were was that this could be a way to treat DKS. And if you think of a neurological condition, if it's a neurological issue with the spider, and I've heard people say that they use CBD oil to treat these neurological the neurological type conditions that it helps, then maybe there is something. I don't know. I I wonder, and I again, there's not a lot of information out there. I didn't contact him or anything. It was just something in the back of my mind that popped up when I was doing you know some notes for this one. I, I wonder if it might not have been DKS at all. It sounded, what he was describing sounded a lot like what happened with my P arboricola, which pulled out of it on her own without CBD oil. So imagine, if you will, I have the P arboricola, it's doing poorly, and I go, you know what, I'm going to put CBD oil in there and see what happens, and she perks up. Now, what am I going to think? Well, the CBD oil must have done it, where in effect, she, she, in reality, I didn't do that, and she still got better. So I do wonder, you always got to wonder if the spider got better, but it was food for thought. I, I will say that it was one of those deals that it got me thinking, like, could that be something? If it's not going to harm the spider, could it be something that helps the spider? We don't know. So obviously, there'd be a, there would need to be a lot more research on that before I'd start telling people to do it. When that video came out, I had people coming over on my videos going, yeah, do you see the CBD oil cures them? And I had the, you know, 
had to be careful on how I responded because I was like, all right, yeah, that's an interesting case. And it got me thinking about how that might work. And, you know, it'd be interesting to see if it works in the future. But we got one instance, could be a false positive. We don't know. But definitely food for thought. So I wouldn't go, I mean, if somebody does end up with a spider that's ill, a tarantula that's ill, and is exhibiting these, you know, well, the DKS type symptoms or the bacterial infection or whatever it may be type symptoms, and they want to try that out, heck, I would be happy to, I would love to hear about the results of it. Did you see any changes? Did it pull through? Did it improve? Because we don't know. And again, I don't want this taken the wrong way. I'm not poo-pooing it at all. I'm saying it gave, it really got me thinking. I just think we got to be very careful before we jump on something and go, all right, that's it. We've got the solution to it. We need to do a little more research, at least within the hobby for that. So I don't know how we do that. I, you know, Again, if somebody's spider showing signs like this and you want to try the old CBD oil trick, I would definitely look up his video because I, I believe he details exactly what he did, how much he added, how much he gave him. It wasn't a lot. Um, that could be something we look at in the future and that could be a huge thing. Who knows? But anyway, I wanted to cover that aspect of it because that was a recent development. I think that was just the end of last year or the beginning of this year. Oh my God, 2020 feels like 10 different years. It might've been just a couple months ago. Who knows? But anyway, it was something that was fairly current and they did get around. I mean, he's been in the hobby forever and I think some people got people thinking. So that would be something that, you know, think about. But as far as DKS, I would, you know, I don't want people panicking about it because it doesn't happen often. I, I mean, it, it, it can happen and people see signs of it. I would like people, you know, one of the things I want people to be aware of now, if they see signs like this, get video of it. That's that's important. It's It sucks for lack of a better term. Paul, you know, excuse my language, but it's, it's not a fun thing. I, do, I don't like watching the video I have of mine uh, going through that and – but it, I think it's important that we document it because I do want to see, I mean, I am really upset with myself. Honestly, I was telling Billy this the other day with a P or Boracola. I didn't think she was going to pull out of it. So I got zero footage of her because I just didn't want to see it. It was one of those deals. Like, what have we got the gain on this? I, I don't want to see her just waste away and die. And now I regret it because had I gotten photos or video of her movements and stuff, it would be easier to put these two videos next to each other and show what I saw as a perceived difference between the motions, that it wasn't necessarily DKS. That's a different thing entirely. Or I think it's a different thing. Could be related. Who knows? But anyway, if you have a situation where your tarantula is exhibiting these types of signs, whether either of these things I've described, please get some video of it. I know it's not easy. I know it's not difficult, but I do think it's important that we start getting that so people can see it as a reference. Because sometimes I'm trying to, people will send me a video and they think it has DKS and I'm trying to explain what DKS looks like or they have something they're trying to describe it to me and I'm going does it look like this does it look like this and there's nothing to reference I can throw on my video but it'd be nice if we had more of them so if, I think moving ahead that's what we would want to do as a hobby put those someplace I would love to I did an article on DKS on my site quite a while back I would love to expand on that I would also like to get some footage of the other thing that I saw, like with the Pia or Boracola. So if, you know, if we can put these together, have them in a spot, I'd love to do something on the website with that, or maybe even a YouTube video in the future. Again, I'm not hoping anybody gets these, but if people do have this type of footage, it would be interesting to see. I'd be very interested in seeing it. So that would be, you know, my thought. I know not everybody out there wants to film their spiders doing everything and are used to doing that, but if you get some decent footage of it, that would be something that would be really nice to have so we can evaluate this. Or when we start getting people, again, we have... Um, in the future, we're going to be speaking to a veterinarian on the show. It'd be nice to kind of bring some of that stuff up and maybe get an opinion on it. I just think it's important that we record some of this stuff, have it for reference so that it can be looked at and that we can, you know, try to break down what we might be seeing. Because again, it's it's been a common theme throughout many podcasts. It's, it's kind of a shame we know so little about them because 
we love our animals. We want to keep them safe and healthy. And we feel like, you know, again, put some water on it. The only thing we, our, our big go-to when something is sick is to put it in a tarantula ICU with a bunch of water. That's it. So it'd be nice if we could improve that in the future. So that's my spiel on DKS. I want to bring it up again because it's been popping up all over the place. And I figured it'd be a good time to discuss it. The other thing I'm going to be discussing today, not in length, but somebody asked a question the other day that uh, just got me thinking. And it's been something I've thought about before. And I get a lot of questions about it how important is cross-ventilation? What type of cages can you use? Can you use cages that don't have cross-ventilation? So here's the deal. And just, I don't want to turn this into a big, long discussion, but I do think it's something that I've thought about myself because the idea out there in the hobby now is that good enclosures offer adequate cross-ventilation. And the the thought process is the more cross-ventilation you get, the better. Now, why is this? I've had people go, what's the difference between having the top ventilation as opposed to cross-ventilation? Well, in good cross-ventilation, now granted, with cross-ventilation to work, there should be some type of airflow in the room that they're in. So I always encourage people that are able to, if you have your own tarantula room or something, to have a fan going in there, especially in the hot summer months because it gets the air moving. But the idea is, think about it. Like, for example, in the winter, your house is all shut up. The house gets stuffy. You know, you wait for that good warm day so you can open up all the windows. We do it around here. We open up the windows. We get a good cross breeze and it, it airs everything out. It's the same principle. With a tarantula enclosure, if you don't have cross, if you have cross ventilation, it allows the air to go through the enclosure, take out that stagnant air, especially it's it, it particularly important when you have moist enclosures because it keeps that moist air moving so it doesn't become stagnant. Very important. We all agree. But then we have situations where, and somebody brought up to me the other day, it's like, I know cross-ventilation is incredibly important, and I know slings aren't quite as durable as adults. Why is it then we keep them in vials and we have no cross-ventilation? I was like, yeah, good point. Uh, I didn't think of it that way. And that is a very good point. And I think with slings, the idea is you're trying to keep that environment, you're trying to keep them from drying out. So we sometimes err on the side of having slightly more stuffy enclosures. Now, again, I think a trick with slings is to not overdo it with the moisture. I've seen people that like soak down all the substrate in it. It needs to be one of those deals where you're moistening down a portion of it or the lower level so it can dig, but you keep the top levels dry so it doesn't get overly stuffy. But if you're using dram vials, that's a very good point. I did, somebody did show me where they had taken a dram vial, it was the bigger ones, and it was a bigger sling, I should make that very clear. And they used a Dremel tool with the tiniest bit to put holes cross ventilation in the side. And it looked like it worked fine. I tried doing it with one a while back. It just, it was kind of a bit of a nightmare. It didn't work. I went to the, just the holes in the top of the, the cap. But I think with slings, we got to think about the fact that it's extra important that they don't, it's one of those things you're, you're kind of weighing what's going to be the bigger issue. Is it going to get stagnant in here or is it going to dry out too quickly? Because I have situations where I've put slings in enclosures that I've cross ventilated a lot and it dried out a lot more quickly than I would have expected. Now, again, if you're being a diligent keeper, you should notice that. You should be able to go, oh, look at this little deli cup is drying out quickly. I need to fill it more. But sometimes, in the, particularly in the warm winter months when the heat's drying out the air, I've had, like, for example, the 2.2 ounce, I think they're 2 ounce or 2.2 ounce deli cups. I've used those before for the small slings, and I put the holes all around the sides. Those dry out so quickly that sometimes it's been like two days, and you go in there, and the thing's bone dry. So you have to be – it's almost to the point where it becomes a liability. So I think in a situation with tiny slings, we are – we're foregoing the cross-ventilation, but we're we're having to make sure – that we're keeping the slings hydrated. That becomes of paramount importance. So I think we kind of forego that. And obviously, a lot of people have used these for quite some time and never had an issue. Obviously, if, if they 
absolutely had to have cross ventilation or they would die. Thousands of slings would die a year because a lot of people use these, especially dealers, people that have large collections. If you're raising slings, you use these. They're easy to go. They're, they just work out great for them. So they obviously don't need it. And I think that's where people get hung up on the cross ventilation thing is, and I want to make this very clear. Can you keep a spider successfully without having cross ventilation? Yes, you can. I'll compare it to this. Can you keep a spider without giving it a water dish? Yes, you can. See where I'm going with this? It's one of those things that when at all possible, you want your cross ventilation. So the slings, we kind of have to take those out of the equation because they're used to living in the ground and burrowing at that point. It's not a big of a deal. Plus the fact I try to point out to people that with slings, you're not keeping them in the enclosures as long as you would adults. My slings, depending on the species, obviously, but for most of the moisture dependent slings, I'm thinking like Keelobrachy species, you know, uh, Pamphibedius, Formictopus, things of that nature, ones that are going to require some moisture, those outgrow those little sling enclosures so quickly. They don't spend a lot of time in there. It's not re- there's not really a lot of time for those enclosures to get fetid and nasty if you change them at an appropriate time and put them in a bigger enclosure. So it's not as big of an issue as it would be with an adult that's going to be stuck in a cage. So you have a situation where you have, say, a Keelobrachis fimbriatus, and you have it in an enclosure, a 10-gallon tank with a bunch of substrate, and there's no cross-ventilation. That could be a little more of a deal, a big deal, because it's been in that enclosure so long that, again, it can start to breed bacteria. It can start to create an environment that's not good for the spider. So with larger enclosures, especially adult enclosures, I do think cross-ventilation is something you always want to strive for. Now, one of the enclosures that comes up quite a bit, the exoterras. I use a lot of the exoterra nanos, and I think with the exoterras, it's it's a unique situation where it kind of offers both. Obviously, the top screen, I do replace the screen with drilled plexiglass, but there's still ventilation through the top. Plus, there's a little vent in the front. So ideally, if you do have a fan going in the room, what happens is that airflow, in theory, goes through the front of that enclosure, through that vent there, and also allows it to go up on through. So there is circulation, but it's going from front up through the top. So although they don't offer cross-ventilation the way we normally picture it, which is having holes on all sides, which I do think is the ideal for just about everything, I will throw that out there, it does offer that movement. So again, I put a fan in my tarantula, I'm blowing around, that air is coming through, it's going out. Now the issue I have sometimes, one of the bigger issues I have with ones that ventilate from the top is if it's particularly for moisture-dependent species, the water tends to evaporate much, much, much more quickly. It comes straight out. And I did, my son and I did a little experiment years ago where we ventilated, I think it was a 32-ounce deli cup from the top and we uh, did the sides as well. We put really big oversized holes in it, but we wanted to see what happened. And the one that had the top ventilated evaporated and dried out much more quickly than one with the side ventilation which I thought was very unique and very interesting and it kind of it it woke me up a little bit to the fact that all right you're still getting ventilation air is still coming through you know stuff's still coming out of it what you're going to get is more evaporation and less of that airflow because that's what you're striving for airflow I think one of the problems is that back in the day when people would get tarantulas the go-to enclosure for an adult tarantula would be a 10 gallon aquarium they would take the typical 10-gallon fish aquarium. They would put one of those wire mesh tops on it. They would stick the tarantula in it, and it didn't matter which species it was. That was its home. And for moisture-dependent species, this would become a problem because obviously everything would evaporate right on up, and it would dry out very, very quickly. So what they would do to compensate for it is they would cover up a restrict ventilation by covering up the top of that enclosure. It's in the Tarantula Keeper's Guide. If you look it up, they'll tell you how to put like saran wrap or plastic over it. 
to completely restrict airflow. And in those instances, they will tell you, well, the tarantula doesn't need a lot of oxygen going in their breed, so it's going to be fine. That's not the problem. The problem is that creates in a, a stuffy environment, a death trap environment for tarantulas. So I think a lot of this came from people reacting when we realized these 10-gallon aquariums are not ideal for keeping tarantulas. And one of the reasons is because of that top ventilation that people started thinking more along the lines of, wait a minute, it would make a lot more sense to have airflow go through the enclosure just like think about like I used to keep snakes we always when I build my snake enclosures I'd always have the ventilation on the side because I wanted the airflow through it again you would use the tanks and have the ones that go through the top as well but when I made one myself I knew I wanted that cross ventilation in there and a lot of times they're stackable so you don't have that so I think that got people thinking along the lines of you know what it's better if the air goes through it and I do think that's very very important now is it, again, I think the best analogy I give it, it's just like the water dishes. Can you get away with keeping a spider in something that's not cross-ventilated? Yes, you can. Is it the best way to keep them? I don't believe so. Do I have ones that are in stuff that isn't cross-ventilated? Well, that's a great question. Thinking now about it, I don't think I have anything that doesn't have at least some type of cross-ventilation. All my Sterilite enclosures, that's one of the reasons I love Sterilite in the plastic bins, is you can put as many holes as you want. I put them all around the sides. I get good cross-ventilation. I don't worry about the tops. I have my acrylic enclosures, again, through the sides, although sometimes they don't put as many holes as I would like. And then I have my Exoterras that, again, offer the kind of a cross ventilation. I do think it works where they have that vent in the front door and then the top is opened up. So it does allow airflow to go through, especially with the fan. Would I put them in something that doesn't offer cross ventilation? Well, I'm thinking in terms of some of my fossorial species. I have them in closures right now, and that's the only thing I can think of that doesn't have cross ventilation. I have these enclosures that are only ventilated on the top, but they're filled with so much substrate, and the substrate is so close to the top of the enclosure that there is airflow in there. But should I probably have cross-ventilation? I probably should, which is why I have a glass hole saw, because eventually one of my things I want to try doing is start putting cross-ventilation in some of the glass enclosures so I get more airflow. So I think the trick is, you should absolutely be trying to find enclosures that offer some type of cross-ventilation. The big question I get asked, and I think I've already explained, the Exoterras, I like them. I think they do work well. I do. I would encourage you to replace the screens in the top, but I have found that with mine, they work really well with the spiders. I think I get enough cross-ventilation that the spiders are in good shape. I've had no issues with them. I use the arboreal ones. I've used the 12 by 12 cubes. Granted, the 12 by 12 cubes also are set up as bioactive, so there is the plant in there that's hopefully oxygenating some of that area too, helping keep it from getting fetid. So that's something to take into consideration, but I do think those work well because there's a lot of people come to the point where they see all these videos and all these people that are keeping them exoterras and then they find out they're supposed to have good cross ventilation they go wait a minute that doesn't really offer it and so hopefully that helps to explain why they work it again it is that vet in the front is it the ideal no i would say it's probably not which is why i'm kind of switching some of mine out to acrylic ones now that have that cross ventilation because when possible i like to have it but they can work i wouldn't freak out people have used them for years with no issues I do think they make good homes for spiders if set up correctly, so I wouldn't worry about that. But again, it goes back to that one I did a while ago, or the podcast I did not, actually it wasn't that long ago. Again, 2020, seems like 20 different years. The one where we talk about putting the spiders first. Always put the spiders first. And this is where I run into a lot of problems, where people will break out enclosures that are not in any way, shape, or form appropriate for a spider that don't offer nearly enough ventilation anywhere. And again, ideally, you want something that offers some of that airflow. So if you don't think it's getting the airflow, if you think it's going to become too stuffy, don't use it. It's probably not appropriate. 
but I do get a lot of questions about this and I get how it can be confusing because it's kind of like the do what I say, not what I do. When you sit there and talk about, you know, cross ventilation and then they watch a video of yours and go, well, wait a minute, you got these enclosures there and they don't look like there's hole, there, there are holes all around it. I get it. it. It can be very confusing. And I think that it's one of those things too, that once you get into the hobby, spend some time in the hobby, play around with different enclosure types, you start getting a better feel for what's going to be appropriate and permissible and what might not be. And uh, it stinks because we're so we we stick to these hard rules and we put out the cross ventilation thing out there and I think that we don't ever actually explain what is cross ventilation, what does it mean, what are different types. Again, like with the Exoterra, we kind of get some airflow in there, and it can be very stressful for somebody that's just getting in to try to wade through that and figure it out. So that's a deal. When it, it, the thing to strive for, we'll leave it at this, so it's not confused because I don't want people listening to this and going, "Oh, Tom Moran said you don't have to worry about cross ventilation." Not at all. Ventilation is incredibly important. A lot of people's problems with stuffy enclosures, enclosures with mold, with undesirables in there can be attributed to the fact that there's not enough good ventilation. So I think when at all possible, you want to use enclosures enclosures that allow that air to get through the cage and clean it out as best possible. And again, the other tip is run a fan when when you can, a small even a small fan in there just to kind of keep the airflow going, keep the currents moving, get a, a room. If you got a window, open up every once in a while, air things out, that helps as well. And for the slings, again, I get it. They, we don't offer a lot of their flow in those dram vials, but remember, they're not in there very long. And at that point, we don't want those things drying out too quickly because that's something you need to consider that the more airflow you have, especially in those moisture-dependent enclosures, the faster the moisture will evaporate out of the enclosure. So if you have an enclosure that's, say, a 4AT Sturmy and there's holes all around the side, holes all around the top, that's awesome. Just know you're going to have to be more diligent in keeping that thing moist because it's going to evaporate much more quickly. So hopefully that helps explain a little bit uh, my thoughts on it again. And, and just keep in mind that you, if you put the tarantula first, it should help you really, it should dictate what you use for enclosure. It should be very obvious. We've all been in that situation where we're looking at an enclosure and we want to use it for a tarantula, but deep down in our hearts, we're looking at realizing, nope, this isn't really appropriate. I've been there. I was just, I was talking to somebody who was going to use something that she, after retrospect, decided it wouldn't be appropriate. And I was explaining to it, listen, there's no judgment here because I had an old snake enclosure that I was going to try to use for an embrobustum years ago, and I did some alterations on it, but this thing was in no way, shape, or form appropriate for a tarantula. And I found it in the attic uh, about a year ago, and I remember looking at it going, man, how far I've come, because I almost used this thing. So I think a lot of it comes down to common sense, a lot of it comes down to experience, and a lot of it just comes down to recognizing what does my spider need, what is going to be the best situation for my spider, and then using that to dictate what you use. Okay, so that should about do it for this episode. Ran a little short today. I've been trying to aim for that 45-minute mark because I can't tell you how many people have told me they have like a 45-minute commute or something. So I'm always thinking of these people driving like, oh, no, what am I going to listen to for the last five minutes? So I'm always shooting for like 45, 50 minutes or so. But again, I have another – usually what I do is I have a list of topics that I might – talk about and if it gets too close to that 40 minute mark and I don't feel I can do the topic justice or it's going to run way over I'll save it the next week because the other thing is I don't want to give them too too long and bore people to death although I know there's some people out there that say they can listen to it forever I'm sure there's others that are like all right good enough but anyway that'll do it for this one as always if you want to find me on my website I have tomsbigspiders.com I'm on YouTube you can find me there I don't know why I keep saying this I'm sure everybody knows this by now but there are people that find the podcast and go oh you have a youtube channel so i put it out there just for giggles at least it's not like the annoying youtube stuff where they tell you to smash the like button and all that garbage which drives me 
absolutely nuts. But got to have something to sign off with. And for those of you that have been listening to the podcast for a while, you remember how sketchy it was in the beginning where I didn't know how the heck to sign off on these things. And it just got weird every single time. So anyway, that'll do it for me. As always, thanks so much for listening. Stay safe. And we'll catch you guys all next time.